Welcome to the Planning Life Insights of Brian, a podcast looking into the practical things that you need to know to navigate your business through the UK planning system. Today, we'll be looking at practical tips on progressing through each stage of the planning process in the brave new world of COVID-19 and what to do about planning permissions expiring because of delays to implementation. My name is Sheridan Trader, Senior Associate in the planning team of law firm Brian K. Leighton Paisner. I'm joined by my colleagues, Claire Eccles, our team's dedicated knowledge development lawyer. She's been staying on top of the almost daily developments for us. Paul Grace, Associate Director, and Gemma Green, a first seat trainee who we regularly deploy at sitting through the various new developments for us. Good afternoon, everyone. Good afternoon. Good afternoon. Good afternoon. What can I say? We have woken up in a post-apocalyptic movie, but at least it's the early scenes of Outbreak and not the final scenes of Planet of the Apes, on the subject of which my kids are locked next door with a pack of hobnobs and Netflix, so here we go. I suppose, let's start with a, a general comment on how local planning authorities are engaging with developers just to keep planning applications moving, you know, pre-app discussions, seeking further information, discussing conditions. Um, go on, Paul. Yeah, well, uh, as the you know the the crisis uh, escalated, I, I certainly heard some authorities, particularly in London, were having to reassign planning department staff to deal with uh, you know frontline local authority COVID response services. So I think planning certainly went onto the back burner, uh, understandably, for uh, for uh, a few weeks. Uh, so we're very much you know we're in the world the the world of the art of the possible. I think different authorities certainly will be more prepared uh, than others, but uh, most are adapting, um, like the rest of us, officers uh, are working from home. Uh, so I think the key there, just make things as user-friendly as possible. Think of your own working conditions. It's difficult plowing through very lengthy documents. Uh, make uh, make things as coherent uh, as possible, the, you know, the poor old, Planning officer may not have a decent printer at home, uh, so just keep that keep that in mind. Um, I wonder what's happening on on concrete stuff like uh, site visits. Do, do, do the officers abandon their dodgy internet connection and then you know put on hazmat suits and then just wander around like a scene from from Outbreak? <laughs> it's a good question, but not that I've heard. Um, some councils are encouraging the greater use of photographs to be submitted with applications, and in some cases, developers are even using drone footage for additional aerial shots. Okay. Um, I'm also wondering about things like, um, you know, pre-app public consultation. Um, you know, that's always been pretty critical to, to unlocking issues before you submit, and I know there's been a lot of creativity on that. Um, I saw a note from Kamarg, you know, who are experts in, in public consultation. We've done a lot of good work with them on, on various projects. And I think the, the theme they brought out was, you know, now, now more than ever, you still need to keep a human face to make up for the loss of human interaction. Um, and you still need to be clear about what you're, you're bringing forward. But what you do is you combine the old with the new. So you, they, they do like an old fashioned leaflet drop that in turn points to all manner of, of like newfangled uh, stuff that's actually de rigueur in, in other walks of life. Um, you can have live chat and hotlines kind of like you do with customer services for online delivery or utility companies. You can talk online to an informed member of the professional team about the project and they signpost you to, to you know, further information. You can have one-to-one -one videos. Um, you can book slots uh, over the course of a consultation period. And also, I think you still, um, 
layer your consultation at appropriate groups of appropriate size. So you can still have uh, like specialist stakeholder group webinars, you know, privately for, uh, you know, counsellors or a residence association or another specialist group. But I think um, you still do need to use traditional methods where there are people who are kind of hard to reach, you know, with hard copies, telephone lines. Um, and I think as ever, you know, I suppose from a legal perspective, to minimise your risk, if you agree an approach with the council up front, you know, you, you are, you are minimising uh, scope for, for challenge. Um, so, so I suppose you spoke about site visits, but what about site notices, anyone? Well, some councils are telling applicants that they themselves might actually be tasked with displaying the site notice. And then once that site notice is on display on maybe a lamppost or street furniture, the applicant will then be required to take a picture that displays the date the photo was taken, and then they'll need to send that picture to the council via an email. Okay, Jim, I can see how that how that works. So basically, the council tells the planning consultants to go put on hazmat suits, but uh, that, that's life. So what, what about what about planning committee meetings? I, I'm reminded of, of a scene from Twelve Monkeys, you know, this dark virus-infested future, and, and Bruce Willis. There's a scene where he gets sentenced by these this panel of judges wearing gas masks. Is that what planning committees look like now? Go on, Claire. Not quite. Uh, measures were introduced, were introduced to allow virtual planning committee meetings in the Emergency Coronavirus Act legislation that was passed at the end of March. And this change was needed because the Local Government Act 1972 required councillors to be physically present to decide applications. And there was no provision for remote participation or voting. Uh, but regulations subsequently made under the COVID Act uh, came into force on the 4th of April. Uh, that brought these provisions into force so that committee meetings can now be held remotely, provided that participants can hear and participate. Uh, but at the moment, it is a temporary measure expiring in May next year. Okay, I, I wonder. I wonder how it's working in, in, in practice because I saw um, there was a very good note by Development Intelligence, you know, our, our, who, are, who are experts uh, in, in political consultancy, at, you know, at a local and a national level. And um, it seemed to bear out some of the experience that we've seen about how, how this is working. I think, Gemma, you had a read of it, didn't you? Yes. Well, it sort of mentioned that sometimes members are getting bored by the new death by PowerPoint nature of remote committee meetings. And they're pushing on to voting more quickly, which can impact your application, depending on where you are on the agenda. Yeah. And then there are some councillors who are not so great with the technology, who are missing some of what's going on during those meetings. And that's because of disruption, disruptions that are caused by others who are getting to grips with the technology. But often there is less of a public gallery to play to. And so meetings are ultimately becoming more technocratic. That sounds like a good thing. And I think they, they picked out um, Wheels and District Council, didn't they? they did so i think i think they were impressed by um the members were sort of set up with a technology and they were trained they had a good format uh, members uh, asked to speak uh, using a chat function that the public couldn't see and then they were called by the chair in groups of three um the public representations and you know sort of support objection they, those weren't played during the meeting but they got up uploaded to the agenda beforehand so members can see them um but it means that there's less scope for kind of technical cock-ups, frankly, which slows meetings down. Um, I was entertained to see they have a, a comfort break to allow members and viewers to, to get their energy every hour and a half, which reduces fatigue. It, it reminds me of what I'm doing with homeschooling for my seven-year-old. You know, you keep up interest, lots of loo breaks, snacks. So I wonder if, if, if they're doing that. Um, and only the member who's speaking is viewable. So there's no, like, multi-screen, I think, like you see on Zoom. And that stops, you know, some members from gesturing that they want to interrupt and, 
and things kind of getting slowed down. And I think as ever, if you've got a strong chair to keep the pace up, you know, it, it stops things getting a bit, you know, drawn drawn out and, and, and a bit boring and circular. Um, I, I mean, on the subject of, sort of judicial challenge risk, I know initially a lot of people were worried, you know, but what if we abandon the current state of play, you know, with, with live uh, committee meetings and, and make things remote. But, but I heard a, a talk by one of the landmark chambers QCs, and, and, I, and I agree with everything he said. He said, you know, look, basically, um, the planning court is going to take some convincing that this remote approach to council proceedings is unfair as their kind of starting point. Obviously, it's always fact specific, but basically the, the court itself is, is having uh, online hearings, uh, remote hearings. And, you know, my five year old has Zoom meetings. So, you know, people of, of any age can be taken to understand instructions. And frankly, what, you know, what's the difference between, you know, finding your way to a committee room in a rabbit warren of a council building or, you know, some form of, of online technology or, or sending in a letter and, and discussing with the case officer beforehand. So that, that seems to, to be uh, fine. What about delegation, though? Well, delegations, um, planning authorities have always got scope to delegate committee decisions to officers and decide where appropriate. And some councils already had emergency delegations in place, allowing them to bypass procedures, or they have since put these delegations in place pretty, pretty quickly since the lockdown. Uh, for example, Manchester City Council has amended its constitution on a temporary basis, so the chief executive can decide major applications in consultation with the head of planning, but without a full committee having to be convened. Um, I'm wondering about um, if you've got a 106 on, on the blocks ready to go, is it, does everything come to a halt now because of that? Well, not necessarily, but you're right, this can present um, a real practical challenge, especially as authorities usually sign Section 106s under seal and often you do need witnesses to sign as well. However, there is scope for Section 106 agreements and other legal documents to be electronically signed and electronically sealed. And many of the electronic signing platforms have been developed so that they can actually work with these challenges. Uh, but another point that's worth um, bearing in mind is that the National Planning Practice Guidance, the NPPG, allows for negatively worded planning conditions to be used on planning permissions in exceptional circumstances. And a negatively worded planning condition could require an applicant to enter into a planning obligation before the development can commence. We wouldn't usually advise this, um, but it would allow permission to be granted for a Section 106 before a Section 106 is signed. And as I said, using such negatively worded planning conditions isn't usually advised because they are contrary to planning guidance. But planning authorities should be willing to recognise that the COVID crisis is an exceptional circumstances that does justify their use under this particular part of the NPPG. And I suppose if you're a developer, your concern about that kind of thing is the uncertainty of what you, know, you don't know what you're signing up to. But if you agree a form of document uh, with council solicitors and the conditions sort of state it'll be in the form that's been agreed on a certain date and they reference that document, then I suppose it, it removes the harm there. But, you know, again, I suppose you explore other alternatives. Um, what's happening about planning appeals just to go to the next stage? Well, unfortunately, planning appeals have been uh, temporarily paused by the planning inspectorate. Um, these are planning appeals that were proceeding by way of hearing or public inquiry. But interested parties have submitted a request to PINs and the Secretary of State that by using video technology and adapting formats, they should be able to be resumed shortly. 
and these points are being considered by PINs um, and they are considering and actually trialling whether it is possible to use remote conference facilities for appeals. Um, and inquiries could proceed virtually if all parties agree or if one vetoes then PINs could decide based on representations on how to proceed. I, I think you're right. I think uh, it's coming back to me. I think uh, some of the, the barristers' chambers wrote in, didn't they, saying, you know, look, as in the development consent order regime, can't you split things up that can be done on the papers um, and things which need an issue-specific hearing, uh, and those can be done uh, remotely? So that, that may be the way forward, which, you know, the, the inspectorate will, will get round to. Uh, that's right, and written appeals are continuing, albeit with some impact on time period for determination. So I suppose we've, we've worked through, you know, when things are going well, you know, you've got your permission, but obviously, you know, judicial review uh, of decisions is part of the process as well. And I think we've been hearing that the, the planning court um, that, that has, has heard a lot of cases by video link, um, but in practice, they're not really open to, to new business. They're going through existing claims and COVID-19 specific stuff um, because the, 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 the admin court office is working at you know massively reduced capacity and so um, they're just processing what they've got and at some point there'll be a bit of a backlog um, and I think the thing to remember is you know the time limits for lodging these claims still runs uh, the statutory uh, time limits you know are fixed and they can't be extended and although I suppose technically speaking you, you can ask the court for leave to appeal for, for, for leave to uh, bring jail outside the six-week period for a normal planning commission um, you, you've got to show exceptional circumstances and you must be hard pressed to get one because, you know, lawyers are still operating. People always tell us that lawyers are the creature most likely to survive a nuclear blast. And, you know, here, here, here we are. Um, I always think it's a bit unfair. Um, what's enforcement looking like? Well, as you probably know, local authorities have always had a discretion as to whether or not to enforce a breach of planning control. Um, but the government quite helpfully um, issued a written ministerial statement in which they urged planning authorities to apply pragmatism to the enforcement of restrictions on planning conditions, uh, particularly those that hinder the effective response to the COVID crisis. Um, and it seems that planning authorities are generally applying this guidance and they're not being overly officious. But what planning authorities can't do is have a blanket policy not to enforce. I, I think it's, it's clear that local authorities, you know, aren't being heavy-handed. That they're, they're mindful of, of the reputational damage of, of, of doing that. But you know, equally, we're not in a lawless kind of Mad Max world. So not if you look out my window and see speeding going by. But but there's, there's still no guarantee as to how a local authority is going to respond in any given case. So I think from what I've seen, they some are operating a, a desktop triage system whereby. Uh, complaints for certain breaches just aren't being registered, but others are kind of investigating on, on a case-by-case -case basis because, you know, fundamentally, we were joking about hazmat suits, but you can't just send uh, enforcement officers out willy-nilly. And so I think that's putting the responsibility uh, for enforcement on, on people reporting the breaches, and, and they've got to provide the evidence. I think, I think you're less likely to get a visit from officers unless you're talking about, you know, damaging protected trees or, or heritage assets. And I think, you know, as ever in these things, at a difficult time like this, it's a, it's a tactical decision um, whether you, you know, if you think you might be in breach because of COVID-19, whether, you know, you speak to the local authority and try and agree uh, their view um, or, or you just, you know, uh, proceed as is and then see what, what happens. But I think 
let's leave the planning process behind um, and turn to something I think Paul's been doing a lot with, which is keeping permissions alive. Um, because the, the risk of planning consents lapsing during the current crisis is, is a major economic concern. Local authorities, you know, as Paul said, you know, people being reallocated, you know, they, they don't have the resources necessarily to, to, to discharge pre-start conditions before the consents expire. And you know, a lot of developers are in conserved cash mode and they wanted to press the pause button on, on spending on, 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 on discharging conditions, commissioning works, and of course paying SIL and 106 contributions. You, you can't extend the time limits in law. Um, I've seen it mooted by some uh, in some notes that you can, you know, maybe you could use section 96A and the non-material amendment application process. Um, but I think that the general legal consensus, I think Paul agrees, must be that you can't because you know, something as fundamental as time limits for commencement of development is, is, is not rationally going to be seen as non-material. And, um, you know, if you read the case law uh, on, on planning, which we, we, we do all the time, you know, the courts bang on about how the, the Town and Country Planning Act is, is, is supposed to be read as like one complete code. So how can you have Section 73, which specifically says to stop land banking, basically, you, you can't extend permissions. And then people arguing, well, if, you know, it's not material lands under another provision in the Act, Maybe you can. So I think I think Garvey must be you'd be at, at risk of, of a JR challenge, depending on the facts. But but you can get creative, I think, with Section 96A, um, because you can try to push back some of the the pre-commencement requirements, um, and and because not all conditions necessarily are properly pre-commencement, and, and authorities might be open to that. But um, I think Paul, you you've been looking at you know what the the, the main practical options are open to clients. Yeah, I, this is a really important issue for government to address. T time limits, as you say, cannot be extended as a matter of law. And, and remember, th these are already tight time limits. The statutory default period for implementation is three years, unless a longer period was agreed when the permission was granted. So, you know, the COVID crisis really throws a huge spanner in the works for any developer that's been working towards uh, implementation of a scheme uh, in the coming 12 months or so. You know, firstly, you've got the practical difficulties with discharging pre-start conditions, you know, just getting access to the site may be difficult for the plethora of surveys that need to be undertaken. You've got uh, archaeology, you know, ecology, bat surveys, contamination, you know, these are all complex matters to be addressed, which are extremely difficult um, in a lockdown or even a, you know, a slight easing of restrictions world that we're moving into. I think just just as importantly, um, implementation of development is, of course, driven, you know, primarily by market forces. The current economic climate creates such uncertainty that it's going to be very difficult for developments to get board approval to proceed towards implementation. Um, you know, viability will be re-evaluated in every boardroom uh, across the world. Uh, you know, whatever a viability appraisal said three, three months ago is highly unlikely to be relevant uh, today. Um, I mean, there's no there's no easy workarounds. I mean, you, you, you know, you've identified quite rightly that uh, if you can get local authorities to sort of strip back what needs to be done prior to commencement of a development, you know, that, that may allow a, a sort of fairly 
cheap and quick way of implementing and keep a permission alive. But I don't think that's going to be a, a good enough solution for the uh, for the sort of real estate sector as a whole. You, you still need an application, don't you? And I think you, you, you were thinking about, well, what could be done at a kind of a macro level? Yeah, precisely. There's clear, clearly a risk that important schemes here will be lost due to permissions uh, lapsing. And, you know, that, that works against the real estate sector being able to help the economic recovery when some sort of return to normality um, eventually comes around. So it's very much with, with, with this problem in mind that we and others have lobbied the Secretary of State um, urging government to step in and make what could be a very straightforward legislative change that would apply an automatic extension to planning permissions and the time limits uh, that, are, that are due to expire you know, in, in the short to medium term. Um, and and haven't, um, haven't they basically done something like this in Scotland already? I think, Gemma, you uh, looked at that. Yes, that's right. So the Scottish Government has actually introduced the kind of change that Paul mentions in primary legislation through the Coronavirus Scotland Act 2020. And this act provides for an initial six-month emergency period from the date of the act and applies a 12-month extension to time limits for any permission which would otherwise have expired during that six-month emergency period. And the Scottish legislation does allow for that emergency period to be further extended by regulations. And this is helpful because it avoids the need for further primary legislation. What do you think about that, Paul? Yeah, I mean, I, I, the Scots have uh, really uh, grasped the nettle here, I think, very effectively and in line with what, uh, what we were suggesting. I, th I think a key question is how long the emergency period during which the automatic extension to permissions uh, should last. Uh, we, we, we think the broad approach is a sensible one, but that a longer emergency period would be preferable given that six months from now, you know, at the very best, the development sector and wider economy, it, it's still going to be very much at the beginning uh, of, the, of the recovery from COVID, you know, the COVID-19 crisis. So, you know, permissions which are due to lapse uh, beyond the next uh, six months or so, it will still be significant risk of, of lapsing. So I, I think that the legislation that the government are looking at should, should, should uh, look look beyond that uh, that period. Um, the I think the, the the proposal of the Scottish government of allowing a, a sort of quick and uh, straightforward amendment to uh, section 91 of the Town and Country Planning Act is the relevant provision uh, in England. You know, that that uh, legislation could be brought through and it could apply retrospectively uh, to any permissions that have already uh, lapsed, you know, over the past uh, month or two as this crisis uh, struck. Yeah, and BTLP have actually made representations to the Secretary of State to this effect. And also, uh, the same problem applies with uh, compulsory purchase orders. Because in a similar vein, uh, there will be a number of local authorities and statutory undertakers with CPA powers that have already been confirmed, but that must be exercised within certain time limits. 
And the same concern arises in that it will be extremely difficult to make necessary progress with the exercise of such powers and commit to land acquisition costs in the current economic climate. So an extension of these time limits um, to CPO powers would therefore avoid CPOs expiring without powers having been exercised due to the COVID-19 having frustrated the process. I think that's interesting, and I think there's a similar story to be told for development consent orders uh, as part of the effectively planning permissions for nationally significant infrastructure projects, which they bundle together, you know, a planning permission and a, a compulsory acquisition powers. Um, I think technically there's no reason why you can't extend, make an application to extend their lives. But again, I think as Paul was saying, you know, that's, that's still pretty fiddly, and, and ideally you'd want to have some kind of automatic extension for, for all uh, development consent orders without, you know, burning the time of, of the planning inspectorate. Um, but I think um, we're not going to go into any depth on, on planning agreements or, or SIL, but I think we've also been hearing a lot of developers are actually asking local authorities just to hold off issuing permissions because they don't want um, the two-year uh, period for early viability reviews for affordable housing being triggered. Um, and so I think they're asking authorities just to hold off for a few months. Isn't that right, Paul? Yes, we, well, we will have to look at SIL and Section 106 in, in a bit more detail another time. If you're bound by an existing Section 106, you may well need to negotiate a deed of variation uh, where, because of COVID-19, you, you cannot make the kind of substantive start on site and carry out works for the necessary period that would be necessary to avoid triggering the early viability review. And I think a lot of our, our clients, well, a number of them are starting to reach out to us you know, about how they can in turn reach out to authorities on that. Uh, let's take a moment to consider whether the government's announcements uh, on Sunday the 10th of May, moving to the next phase of the response to the coronavirus, will, will change our analysis of planning system. 60 pages of, of, of guidance, what are the changes boiled down to for our purposes? Well, remember that what's being proposed now is not a total release of lockdown, but incremental adjustments to existing restrictions. So under step one, for the foreseeable future, workers should continue to work from home rather than their normal physical workplace wherever possible. You should only go out to work if your job means that you cannot work from home, and you should continue to avoid public transport wherever possible. Paid childcare is allowed, releasing more working parents to return to work, but by no means are most children going to be back in school this month. We're also advised that people should aim to wear a face covering in enclosed spaces where social distancing is not possible. Then, in June, if certain tests are met, more children could go back to school, non-essential retail and more public transport could be reopened, and more social contact could be allowed within controlled so-called bubble groups. Then in July, potentially hospitality, public places and leisure facilities could be reopened. But it's important to remember that the government have told us that this roadmap out of lockdown is dependent at each stage on infection rates continuing to fall without the gradual relaxation leading to it shooting back up again. OK, so we'll, we'll have to see how councils approach this, but case officers and enforcement officers will presumably just continue to work from home, uh, frankly, as, as we are. Uh, and most planning professionals, I think developers will be, but there might be less reticence about going out of sites? 
That must be right. I mean, I saw that Sarah Richards, chief executive of PINS, mentioned last week that site visits in relation to appeal decisions could start again this week, and these have been suspended since the 25th of March. However, instead of a blanket relaxation on site visits, Sarah suggested that inspectors would look at each case to consider whether a site visit was actually even required. It goes without saying that health and safety would, of course, be paramount for those inspectors who were going out on site, and PINs would be looking into unaccompanied site visits, and local authorities might well do the same. Sure. So, uh, so no more hazmat suits for site notices? Well, with the change in emphasis from stay at home to stay alert, the fact that people are now being encouraged to be outside for unlimited amounts of time, albeit still social distancing, it's now less problematic for councils to put up their site notices because it's more likely they'll be seen by passers-by who can then contact the council with their views if that's what they want to do. Sure, but, but I suspect health and safety could still mean the onus rests with developers to get this kind of thing sorted. Um, and also with, with the prohibitions on public gatherings for the foreseeable, um, I also suspect public consultation is still going to be reliant on the kind of digital telephone and postal options that we've discussed. Uh, and I think it would be extremely difficult to conduct an effective committee meeting, even in the later steps of lifting restrictions. Public gatherings will be the very last thing to come back. And even then, assuming the guidance on wearing face coverings continues, the difficulties of understanding someone properly when they are wearing a face mask risks all kinds of miscommunications and potential errors. It sounds like it would be funny if it weren't also tragic. Yes, and I think in terms of providing a mechanism for extending planning permissions in the same way that Scotland has, as we mentioned earlier on the podcast, the government has actively encouraged those who work in construction to go back to work. But it's not really that simple, is it? It's not just about the availability of construction workers to deliver schemes. Exactly. Uh, no, nobody knows if there's going to be a, a so-called V-shaped rapid recovery or the Bank of England is, is right to one of the worst economic slump since 1706. We're still seeing a reasonable amount of property transactions, I think, but plenty of developers just won't want to, to press go on significant planning contributions by implementing schemes till they've got more certainty in the market, particularly where they are very heavily dented by the restrictions. So we must still be expecting some kind of legislation on, on extending permissions. Um, yes, well, let's hope. Um, but one thing that jumped out to me from the government guidance was it saying this is not a short-term crisis. It is likely that COVID-19 will circulate in the human population long-term, possibly causing periodic epidemics. And in the near future, large epidemic waves cannot be excluded without continuing some measures. So I suspect a lot of the measures we've discussed will become embedded in the planning system for some time. Yeah, so in reality, I suspect that everyone from training solicitors to committee members need to make sure that their iPads are adequately charged and to brush up on their Zoom skills. But anyway, I think, I think we'll wrap it up there for now. My, 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 my daughters are starting to pass me notes asking if they can have chocolate cake for dinner again. So uh, thank you, everyone, for listening to the Planning Life Insights of Brian. You've been listening to Paul Grace, Claire Eccles, Gemma Green and me, Sheridan Traeger. Uh, you'll be hearing from us and the planning life insights of Brian uh, again, um, and uh, we'll, we'll, we'll be in touch shortly. Keep well and keep safe.